This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Chris Wallace joined me to discuss the second week of the federal election campaign. She previews the Labor Party's chances of winning, as well as the media's important role in communicating the policies of the two major parties during this campaign. We discuss whether the media are achieving this aim. Then, Scottish paleobiologist Thomas Halliday joined me for an in-depth conversation about his debut book, Otherlands, A World in the Making. Thomas takes us on a journey into deep time and introduces us to the awe-inducing ecosystems, animals, plants and places that existed, from Alaska during the Pleistocene 20,000 years ago to Australia during the Ediacaran 550 million years ago. You'll hear about Antarctica's temperate rainforests, sea-travelling monkeys and giant penguins, among many other wonders. Then, finally, comedian and songwriter Andrew Hansen joined me to discuss his stage show, Everyone Else is Wrong. Andrew's show is featured at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. We discussed his early career in comedy his time with The Chaser team being part of TV shows like CNNNN and The Chaser's War on Everything. We also talk about the craft of comedy and many other things. I am now joined by Associate Professor Chris Wallace, who is based at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. She was a long-standing member of the Canberra Press Gallery and is the author of several books, including How to Win an Election, which I did chat with Chris about a couple of years ago when it came out after Labor's 2019 loss, shock loss to many. So Chris is now joining me to discuss the federal election, which she had I guess, essentially been previewing and discussing and strategizing about way back in 2020. So I welcome Chris now and thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Now, Chris, uh, I know that you're still very much engaged in politics and writing columns uh, in the newspaper, etc. a prolific tweeter like myself, and you cover and follow it very closely. So it's great to speak But I do want to narrow in a little bit on not only the media, but also Labor and their prospects of winning this particular election, especially given the government has been in for so long, almost a decade. It's a very long time for any party to be in power. So first of all, I wanted to ask about the media coverage, because it does seem to be something that is getting people a little bit upset, confused, annoyed. Certainly I've seen that on Twitter, perhaps less so I'm sure in out and about in the quote unquote real world where most people aren't necessarily following the cut and thrust of an election campaign. But uh, there is this kind of horse race style of journalism happening, a bit of like who's ahead, who's behind, who won that day, who lost that day. Oh, someone's had a gaffe. Did they lose that week? Uh, Which we saw with Anthony Albanese and the fact that he couldn't remember the unemployment rate was brought up for the entire week. It's still being referenced now. And then, you know, we saw a poll just a day or two ago from Resolve, which showed that the gap was narrowing between the two parties and everyone was pointing out it must be the gaff from Anthony Albanese. I wonder what your take is on the media's role here, what they're actually doing, and is it any different to when you were a journalist in the press gallery reporting on these elections? Let's attack the big one first, reporting styles. So when I joined the Canberra Press Gallery back in the day, 
Bob Hawke was Prime Minister, Paul Keating was Treasurer, and they'd conducted this kind of masterclass in framing reporting around policy issues. And they spent a lot of time educating journalists about policies. And even if you didn't agree with their policies, it, it gave you a very strong, informed knowledge base from which to report uh, what each side of politics was doing on policy. That hasn't been the case for a very long time now. The coalition really likes football-style reporting or horse-racing-style reporting, as you as you described it then, uh, the who's up, who's down, who's just copped the big hip and shoulder, who's out for the count. They like to keep it really basic. And, of course, they've won an awful lot of elections doing that. Uh, the th why it works for them is if it's just on the basis of personality and who's up, who's down, then people aren't paying attention to the quality of their policies, the impact of their policies, whether they're good or bad at policy, whether they're good or bad at governing, implementing policy. Uh, so by keeping attention off that, they really help their own political prospects. And the election so far has been a really unedifying spectacle of the most basic kind of political reporting. And I've, I've got to hand it to uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, who, who actually created a bit of a circuit breaker unexpectedly last week when the Prime Minister tried to gaslight the nation on the why there was no Federal Integrity Commission yet. The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald actually blew the whistle. They wrote a really strong editorial against the government on this attempted gaslighting about their failure to deliver on a Federal Integrity Commission. They ran the very critical editorial on their front pages and had splash page one leads on this Integrity Commission issue. And I thought, wow, you know, that, that's really good, you know, high-level return to policy, substantive policy, and the real issues. And it was very helpful at the end of a week where, you know, it was who remembered what number and who didn't. Um, and I think in that action, the Herald and the Age actually showed journalists the way back to the higher road on reporting uh, and whether that has an enduring impact over the next four and a half weeks uh, to, to polling day, I don't know, but God, I hope it does. Yeah, I do remember seeing them say that they would normally withhold their preference for a certain party or endorsement of a certain party until right at the end of the election campaign. But they said that they would be very reluctant to endorse the Liberal Nationals because of their current ICAC policy and the fact that essentially it is such a bare-bones, very minimal accountability-type model. And also it seems that Morrison doesn't actually want it to be introduced. It's only been tabled in Parliament. Look, it's a, I've never seen anything like this in federal politics ever. This is the worst gaslighting I've ever seen for, for the Prime Minister to say that... His government has not delivered on a Federal Integrity Commission because Labor wouldn't agree to the bill before it was even introduced into Parliament, is so utterly mad. To, for him to think he could get away with that argument shows how debased uh, he thinks political reporting is in Australia. And thank God the Age and the Herald pushed back. Um, in fact, the government's proposal is even worse than that. I've, I've just uh, filed a review of Stephen Charles and Catherine Williams' new book, Keeping Them Honest, uh, the case for a genuine National Integrity Commission and other vital democratic reforms. I, that'll be coming out in the next Australian book review. And these two very good lawyers review the government's draft bill and say, in fact, the bill protects politicians from scrutiny. It doesn't actually apply or make it possible to apply scrutiny to them. 
It's a terrific book. Do do read it mm. if you get a chance. You should interview them. But I am actually. I'm going to be. Oh, good. <laughs> Funnily enough. That's good. very, very good. So for the Prime Minister to, to think he could run that argument and get away with it and have it work for him just goes to show what monkeys he thinks Australian journalists are, that they would fall for it. Uh, but you know what? If, if the age in the Sydney Morning Herald hadn't called it out, I'm not sure the media would have, which is a real worry. It is a real worry. They did kind of seem to apply the blowtorch to him on it for one day, uh, but it didn't seem to be a sustained criticism, given that it is such a major broken promise and that they don't appear to want to renew the promise for the next term is even more concerning. And you mentioned there Stephen Charles, the former Supreme Court judge who you know, wrote that op-ed with his co-author in The Age, and it, he said, pork barrelling is not only political corruption, it is a breach of the rule of law and an assault on our democracy. So he's using very strong wording there, and it is all true, but it seems to also be because Scott Morrison has been using very inflammatory language because he was really essentially calling IBAC and New South Wales Corruption Commission as well a kangaroo court, which has gotten a lot of uh, lawyers and barristers and QC's noses out of joint for even suggesting that our current corruption bodies are less than fair. And, and that's one of the skillful things that Stephen Charles and Catherine Williams do in their book, Keeping Them Honest. They, they let readers join the dots and work out what complete bunk on that argument is. The, the things that ICAC in New South Wales does and IBAC does in, in Victoria and equivalent commissions around the country do at the state level is a completely regular part of our civil life. It's the way the courts operate. It's the way royal commissions operate. And God knows the, the government has established a few of those and was quite happy for, for interrogations to happen in public in the way that they claim is actually kangaroo courtish. And if you, if you want to look at the basic evidence, I mean, there are three Liberal New South Wales ex-premiers who were felled by ICAC, Nick Greiner, uh, Gladys Berejiklian and Barry O'Farrell, who all have big jobs in private and public life now. Uh, so it's not as though their reputations have been enduringly affected by it. But look, the, the thing is, this can seem like an arcane issue to some people who are very activated on other issues. But the truth is, if you don't have a government of integrity where wrongdoers can be brought to account, then it's hard to make good policy stick in any, any area. And, of course, the classic is climate change. You know, if you want to stop the energy oligarchs uh, liaising with the media oligarchs to keep this great big bonfire of carboniferous fuels being delivered by Australia, then you've got to be able to hold politicians to account on policy. So this is a really core issue. It is a core issue. And I'm quite surprised that climate change hasn't been part of our conversation yet. Perhaps it will eventually, uh, once Labor starts to talk about their policy more, because there is a good story there about the opportunities for the economy and also certainty for people wanting to invest in renewable energy. But we have seen Scott Morrison be, quote unquote, ambushed, but I would just say approached by regular voters out and about on the campaign trail and wanting to talk about climate change with him, younger people. And he essentially just walks away as soon as he starts to hear the words climate. I'm quite surprised that even that isn't something that's reported on, is highlighted, is the level of complete avoidance that Scott Morrison has on this topic, uh, to the point where it's almost very disrespectful to average Australians who do want to raise it with him. His election prospects rely on him avoiding engagement on any of those substantive issues. 
because he knows that the danger for him is voters joining the dots in their mind between his underperformance on a range of issues, including climate. And this is, you know, it's, it's obvious for people who tend to vote Labor or Green. They know what they're doing. They're going to vote Labor and Green, right? It's the people in the middle that the person, the party who wins the election has got to capture. And those people in the middle tend to be centrist voters who, you know, sometimes vote Labor, sometimes vote Liberal. And what the government is very, very worried about is those kind of centrist, soft Liberal voters in typically coalition seats like Kuyong and Goldstein in Melbourne, uh, like Wentworth and Warringah in New South Wales, who they might typically vote Conservative, but they're smart people, they understand climate policy, they think the cl government's climate policy is rubbish. So to the extent that Morrison and the coalition wants to hold on to those soft centrist voters who might drift off to Labor or the Greens or an independent candidate, they're desperate that these issues, uh, climate, integrity commission, gender equity, not be part of the election discussion. And Labor is finding it very hard to get, get them on the agenda when journalists are obsessed with these kind of gaff issues. Um, I really liked the comment of Warwick McKibben, uh, an ANU economist and former Reserve Bank board member who's, you know, no raging lefty, I can tell you. He tweeted this week, I wonder what voters are more concerned about, gas or graft? So let's hope these little kind of points of light in the election debate take off and we get much more substantive discussion on real issues rather than football reporting. Yeah. Well, one policy area that the coalition feel that they are strong in, as we always hear over and over, is the economy. And they focused on that last week for quite a, a lot of the time. And I was surprised because I'm not quite sure that their strength is the economy. And we didn't really see much pushback from journalists around that narrative that he was trying to weave with his policy announcements uh, that he was making. One of them that I mentioned last week was the 1.3 million jobs he was supposedly going to create, but as we discovered, was literally only what was already projected in the budget figures. And also, you know, he was at that factory that um, actually we found out later on is sending a third of their workers offshore to Vietnam. Uh, and he was announcing his great uh, economic and manufacturing policies last week and, and forestry policies with this as a backdrop. And we still didn't really see much critique of that. So if we look at the areas that they wanted, you know, journalists to focus on, the general public to focus on. To me, I didn't really see that there was a great deal of light or scrutiny held up to what he was offering. And I wondered what your thoughts were, whether you had a similar view. Well, that's true. And this is part of Morrison's technique and it has worked for him so well historically. It's very much a, look here, there's a shiny thing. Look over there, another shiny thing. And he keeps moving onto the next shiny thing before Anyone can go, wait, what, wait, and, and do what you just did, which is sit back, review, critique, and go, well, that's not right. Um, so to the extent that he can just keep voters' eyes moving from one shiny thing to another on the evening news, it has worked great for him so far. But, you know, Labor has got to keep chiselling away, the Greens, the Independents have got to keep chiselling away at getting the debate onto the real issues. And you know what? They need a lot more help from journalists. Now, journalists are under pressure Unfortunately, herd psychology can take hold and you, you've got to remember how these journalists are actually physically handled during this period. There's a whole bunch that are travelling with the Prime Minister, 
a whole bunch that are, that are travelling with the opposition leader. And you're if, essentially in a little hermetically sealed bubble while you're moving along. And, and often at, at week's end, journalists are swapped over between the different sides so that they don't get kind of captured totally. So, again, to the extent that the caravan keeps moving on, it's, it's hard for people to perhaps stand back and do the sort of critique you've just done on economic policy. On the other hand, it's their job to be able to do that. And, yeah. uh, of course, the idea that the Coalition of Superior Economic Managers to Labor is the biggest furphy in Australian politics. Um, a couple of economists have done analyses of the last 50 years of Australian macroeconomic history. And on average, Labor's macroeconomic figures have been better than the coalition's. For example, on average over the last 50 years, uh, government spending as a proportion of GDP has been lower on average under Labor than the coalition. Now, I don't want to freak you out by introducing a random thing here, but bear with me. The truly awful United Australia Party, Clive Palmer, Craig Kelly, you know, may they go to political hell as soon as possible, they actually have one brilliant and accurate graph in their generally horrific advertising, and it, it is a graph of Australian government debt over the past few decades, and it actually shows the point that Labor, Labor's Jim Chalmers keeps trying to cut through with, and it's this. Our debt as a nation, our government debt, has gone through the roof. And it went through the roof, started ballooning out massively well before the pandemic. And if you compare it to the levels under previous governments, including Labor governments, it's nowhere near as bad. And it's the elephant in the room in this election. The government's mismanagement of Australia's net position, its lackness on spending, its, its inability to get real quality outcomes for huge, huge spending is kind of the elephant in the room. And it's a complicated thing to explain. It will probably never be properly debated during this election campaign, though I'm hoping it will perhaps centre in some of the leaders' debates if Albanese can get it up. Um, but, you know, the idea that the Coalition of Superior Economic Managers is simply wrong, and if there was one thing that could be punctured during an election campaign that needs to for all time, it would be that. It's not going to happen this time, unfortunately. It may not happen ever, but... You know, it's important for thinking people to bear that in mind and share that knowledge because we need votes that are informed by reality, not by fiction. Yeah, absolutely. And we need the issues to be scrutinised. Uh, I did watch Insiders for everyone else's sake. And Andrew... <laughs> I was going to say, why? Why did you do that? I know. I know. I don't know why. Mainly for radio. So you're welcome, everyone, and you should subscribe to Triple R because I watch Insiders for you. <laughs> you too. Um, <laughs> and Andrew Probin from the ABC, he said that Morrison is happier campaigning than governing. I don't know if he really understood what he said there and the kind of subtext to what he said and how ridiculous it seems in a sense that we're still talking about the coalition being strong in this election campaign when really it's basically smoke and mirrors. As you said, it's, you know, holding shiny things up and hoping we're all magpies. I wanted to then 
Contrast that with Anthony Albanese, who everyone says isn't a good campaigner based on his first week. He hasn't had his baptism of fire soon enough and now he's really being tested. But perhaps he would be better off governing because he has such a brilliantly uh, expert cabinet and front bench and, you know, it has great promise and obviously they've got far more detailed policies than the coalition does. So I wondered, could you contrast the two for me and perhaps focusing on Anthony Albanese more so given uh, your expertise in Labor politics and how you think the two go uh, with that particularly funny quote in mind. One of the things about Anthony Albanese is this is his first federal election campaign as leader. And you know what it's like when you do something for the first time? It can often be a bit different from what you expect. I wrote a column in the Nikkei Asia newspaper this week where I, I opened saying they say federal election campaigns are like finals footy. You know, it's just played at a different level oh, my God, I've committed the sin of a football analogy. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> but it's true. It's completely different. You know, it's it's at a much more intense level. It's much more uh, figuratively physical, if you like. And I don't think Anthony Albanese was prepared for that massive step up in pressure, intensity and attack. Now, any, he probably knew theoretically, you know, his inner observer probably knew it was going to be like that, but to experience it is another thing. I cannot say anything but he shouldn't have made those basic errors however to see the asymmetry in the last day or two as the prime minister has made a couple of you know equally uh, silly slips the asymmetry between the pounding Albanese got from the media last week compared to the way they've let a couple of equivalent slips by the prime minister over the last couple of days just you know disappear into this the reporting you know nowhere's bill um, mm. has been very striking. And there's going to be a big post-mortem on the media after this election, I think, because we expect a lot from our journalists. Historically, our journalists have been very good. But there seems to have been a cultural break in that, you know, the ecosystem's perhaps not so diverse anymore. Uh, we're lacking a few silver silverbacks to really set the tone the way they used to. And I think really there needs to be a bit of soul-searching in the press gallery about just what reporting is and isn't. Now, we know that the Murdochracy has been at it for 100 years trying to skew Australian elections, and Rupert Murdoch's, Murdoch's not the only media oligarch in town. Kerry Stokes is uh, over in the West pretty much the same. But we really expect the ABC to be way better, and I think the pattern of programming and also the editorial approach for reporting at the ABC probably could do with a bit of a, a root and branch review too. Um, the ABC has excellent journalists, but I think that, you know, reinforcing good reporting culture and concentrating on uh, the meat, not the potatoes of the campaign is, is something that needs to be really strongly reinforced because, you know, everything we get as voters in this campaign pretty much is mediated through journalists. You know, that's why they're called the media. They're in between us and the politicians. So an excellent media is essential to a well-functioning democracy and we've probably got to take a bit of a look at, at this campaign in that respect afterwards. Yes, you're right. People aren't watching the live streams of press conferences like we are. And one thing that I noticed in the ABC's coverage is that 
Albanese's press conferences do get cut off quite frequently to go to Scott Morrison's, but also that even the banners along the bottom of the the screen, uh, the other day when Scott Morrison was announcing funding some patrol boats or, or army boats in Western Australia, it literally said government to fund patrol boats. Now, we are in caretaker period, although they have been the incumbents. You know, it seems that they keep getting this kind of air of, inevitability that they are the government and it will continue and they're just going to fund this because they're already in a position as the government to do so. And similarly, you know, on Good Friday, Scott Morrison turned up with Josh Frydenberg and broke his campaigning truce to announce that the government would provide $2 million to the Good Friday appeal and, you know, was campaigning basically by doing that. So I wondered what your thoughts were on on that, the fact that they're reported of as having this sense of incumbency and that that perhaps also gives them an edge and a sense of it's inevitable that they might get in. That's, look, you're 100% right. Your observations are completely spot on. And, you know, one would expect those kinds of poor approaches from the Murdoch press, say, you know, although there are some good journalists there too, some great exceptions. But when it comes to the ABC, they really need to set the standard. And there are just too many examples. You know, you've just said those examples. Uh, I have two from yesterday. Now, I I try to remain calm on Twitter, but I, I just lost it yesterday over the fact that I've been working on academic matters all morning. I turned onto the noon ABC television news to find out what had happened in the campaign this morning. They said, you know, welcome to the new news. And then they immediately crossed to an extended, unexpurgated coverage off the top, a direct feed from the Prime Minister's press conference in Perth. I could not believe it. So I switched to the other ABC channel, which has the news at at noon. They were carrying the same extended, off the top, live feed from the Prime Minister's press conference. I, I just could not believe it. You know, one channel would have been bad enough for the, for, it, for both channels at a time when many people expect uh, to be able to tune in and get an intelligent, non-partisan uh, assessment of what's happened in the campaign during the morning. Appalling. Then in yeah. the evening news, the reporter who did the main television news story on the Albanese campaign last night in the ABC News included some footage from Albanese's visit to the Blues Festival. Now, the reaction of the audience to him at that appearance has been covered quite extensively. Initially, there was talk of him getting cheers, then boos, then it emerged that he started speaking about whatever it was, arts policy or something, and the cheers started again. The only snippet we got in the news story was him being booed. Now, that reporter's an intelligent reporter. They must have known there was at least a mixture of cheers and boos. Why only show the boos? It's, it's just unprofessional reporting. Mm. And I'm, I'm a lifelong ABC lover. I'm a former ABC journalist. And I think there's a, a very deep need for a review of reporting standards and culture in the ABC after this election because, you know, we know there's some pretty rubbish reporting in Australia, but the ABC's a haven for high-end reporting and we've got to bring that culture back to where it used to be and really get some good reporting standards going again. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for sharing those examples. I know that that certainly doesn't correlate to what Jimmy Barnes thought happened that night. Um, His son was tweeting about what he um, said happened. But uh, let's talk about Labor in particular, because they do seem to want to be taking some of those centre voters. And we have seen them say that they will not review the job seeker rate 
and uh, that they won't be changing it anytime soon, that perhaps might be a signal to the centre voters that Labor is a bit different now. They're trying to appeal to coalition voters who might be tougher on welfare. They still do have a focus on um, social issues like the NDIS, which is going to be announced their policy today at 10am, and we've seen their Medicare announcement recently. But I wonder, when you're looking at the topics that have been covered recently that Labor has been announcing, the policy areas that they've been focusing on, do you think that they have been trying to appeal to a broader set of voters? And do you think they perhaps need to do more on that front? Like, what do they need to do to actually ensure that they do win and bring along uh, the voters that are needed to get the extra seats to to win government? Because it seems that uh, it's putting a lot of people potentially on edge, Labor voters, that uh, the polls are tightening and commentators are wondering whether this is a repeat of 2019. So the first thing to say is that polls always tighten during campaigns. So everyone needs to take a bit of a chill pill about what's going on in in the polling. Second thing is Bill Shorten was a deeply disliked leader and he only very narrowly lost the 2019 election. Anthony Albanese is not disliked the way Bill Shorten is. The third thing is that to get anything done at all in Australian politics to improve it, the government's got to change and to get that change the party that does it cannot scare the horses because if you scare off the centrist voters, you are doomed. You cannot win. So, yes, Anthony Albanese is trying to run a pretty sensible, tidy centrist campaign, get a few key messages across that signal more broadly what his government would be like. And essentially he's projecting it would be a Hawke-Keating-style government in the sense that it would be strong on social justice, strong on the environment, strong on gender issues. He's promised an integrity commission before the end of the year. And he's done this successfully. You know, he he had a bad first week, but overall strategically in his three years as opposition leader, he has managed to, to position the Labor Party very well to win office and actually get something on. And the number one way he's done that is, A, he's stopped Labor doing anything not so on the policy front that the government could create a gigantic scare campaign over. For example, franking credits last time. Uh, there's been nothing wild like that from, from the Albanese Labor opposition. And the second thing is he's managed, by keeping his own opposition operation pretty tidy and tight, to keep attention on the government's shortcomings. And his approach is really, do you want three more years of Morrison coalition government and all of the policy implications of that or not. So that was the Prime Minister's triumph last week to get attention off the performance of his government. And Albanese's challenge now is to get it back on that. Uh, So I think people should expect Labor to keep signalling on things like childcare, energy policy, and a range of other kind of core issues that really matter to voters. But apart from that, I think the rest of the campaign, if Labor's to win, needs to be back on the Morrison government, how it governed, whether it governed well enough, enough, and whether people want another three years of it. I agree. And one particular thing that will be interesting is the leaders' debate tomorrow night, which interestingly is going to be on Sky News, so perhaps not everyone will be able to watch it. But I wonder, you know, whether he will 
use this as an opportunity to perhaps go quote unquote negative to focus on their record rather than the coalition always wanting to talk about when Labor was in in office 10 years ago, which, you know, seems quite hilarious. Do you think that he needs to go more negative than he has been? Because he seems to have been a little bit reluctant to go hard on this issue and all of their failings, which when you actually look at them and read them out are quite staggering. Like he, he seems to be, you know, in a perfect position at this election to be able to weaponize these against the Liberal Nationals. So I wonder, do you think he's gone far enough and could he go much further than he has? Well, I think he's been actually very skillful over these three years of opposition in doing the necessary critiques, but not being not doing it in a thuggish, bullying kind of way. And I think the, the leaders' debates are going to be so interesting because you've really got two contrasting kinds of masculinities happening there, haven't you? Um, Morrison's, you know, the bullish, bustling, thuggish, you know, overbearing, classic kind of toxic masculinity type of guy. I mean, and that really characterises his overall politics too. Whereas Albanese has very successfully been the reasonable man doing quiet, intelligent critiques and just pointing out uh, rather than trying to thug his opposite number with the truth. So I, I actually think it's going to be fascinating seeing in a controlled situation of a debate where there's a, a compare kind of managing the situation. I, I suspect Albanese's reasonable man critique is actually going to be pretty powerful and attractive uh, and effective over the thuggish kind of knock them over kind of approach that Morrison is usually so success, successful with. I think we're in for a bit of an interesting time. It's interesting you say that because we did see in the papers even this kind of critique of Albanese being so soft now supposedly because he lost weight and, you know, is healthy and, you know, looks well-dressed. And they said uh, there were pictures comparing him from before saying, you know, he used to be a, a traditional Labor authentic working class guy and now look he's changed and he's become you know very metro and and all this kind of thing and it kind of seemed really absurd at the time but now that you pointed out those kind of contrasting appearances it does seem that there is this real critique of masculinity almost and I wonder which side will appeal to women more because they are you know 50% of the population and it appears that Scott Morrison hasn't done all that well with women for most of his prime ministership. Yes, well, <laughs> funnily, Elbo and I were at uni at the same time at Sydney Uni in the early 80s, mid-80s. Uh, we were both doing political economy. And, you know, the elbow I see now is just, you know, the elbow from back then with X decades added. I mean, he, he was, a, you know, a skinny kind of wiry, whippity kind of guy who loved his music and uh, just lived a normal student-y kind of life. He stacked on a bit of weight over the last few years, and then, to his immense credit, got fit, fit for office, literally. Mm. And to his immense credit, I, th I thought that was actually one of the, the Prime Minister's biggest own goals last year was to draw attention to Albanese getting fit because, you know, what do you want, the kind of porker bully or the guy who's worked hard to get fit for office? I mean, no-brainer really, isn't it? Um, and I think, you know, if you're a, if you're a Morrison-style voter you know, you're just going to go with Morrison. But if you're a centrist voter and you compare the two, I, I think those Kuyong voters, those Goldstein voters, those Wentworth voters who look at Albanese, especially the women, will go, well, you know, this is a reasonable man out to do some decent things. So, you know, 
will Morrison be disadvantaged with his normal persona? I, I suspect so in the debates. Um, I could be totally wrong, but let's see. Let's all watch. Yes, let's. I'm going to. And uh, as I said, we'll... Chris and I will watch for you if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, check out Chris's tweets and we'll see um, how much she holds back. Chris, it's been so great to chat with you and very, you very illuminating as I've been seeing people tweeting and telling us so. So thank you for everyone for the lovely feedback there and I uh, hope we can catch up again. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm also really keen to listen to your interview with Stephen Charles and Catherine Williams over Keeping Them Honest. What a cracking book. I can't wait. Yeah, and I'm really excited. Thanks so much, Chris, and I hope you have a great week. Cheers, you too. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Chris Wallace, and she is based at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra and is the author of many books, including How to Win an Election. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program for the very first time Thomas Halliday. Thomas is a paleobiologist. He is an honorary research fellow at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And he is the author of a brand new book called Other Lands, A World in the Making, and it's been published here in Australia through Alan Lane, which is an imprint of Penguin. We are going to be taking ourselves back into very deep time to millions upon millions of years ago. But at the beginning of this chat, we will start off in somewhat familiar landscapes about 20,000 years ago. So I welcome Thomas onto the program. Hi there, Thomas, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Hello, thank you for having me. It's really lovely to speak. And uh, before we jump into the first chapter in Alaska, I wanted to go back a little bit to where this book has come from and what it's looking to achieve. So first of all, Obviously, you are a paleobiologist. Some people may not be familiar with that kind of job, but they may think of things like dinosaurs, for example. That may be something that springs to mind. But what was it that took you on a life journey, really, to become a paleobiologist and to decide that this was a field you wanted to work in and then write a highly detailed, um, very imaginative book about? (laughs) Yeah, I think I fell into um, paleontology and paleobiology slightly by accident, really. Um, I had lectures uh, on that subject in my third year of my undergraduate. And before that, I'd gone to university thinking that maybe I would want to do genetics and that kind of thing. I was always interested in the big picture evolutionary stories rather than the sort of the nitty gritty of biochemistry and that kind of thing. And then genetics turned out to be far more sort of molecular <laughs> than, than I was really happy with continuing with. So, um, yeah, my, my, my third year was uh, 50% ecology and 50% paleobiology. And so I think that's really where this kind of book comes from, because in many ways, it's not just a paleobiological book. It's an ecological book, right? Most of the time when people think about paleobiology, paleontology, they'll Think about dinosaur skeletons, as you say, sort of mounted in a museum, uh, which are, you know, all well and good. But uh, quite often, unless you sort of go in 
um, and, and sort of read all of the displays, you're sort of lacking the context, right? You've got this single animal usually separated from the world in which it lived. But of course, it was alive. It did do all of the things that animals today do. It, it, it fed and it mated and it played and it slept and it did all of the things that we expect and interacted with its environment. It lived in a world where there were other organisms, other plants, other animals, microorganisms, where climates varied and um, the chemistry of the soil and the water and the air was different throughout Earth history. So what Otherlands does is it takes a holistic view of a series of 16 sites through the last 550 million years of Earth history back to the dawn of um, complex ecosystems. And I, I really wanted to sort of present this ecological view of the past to kind of get away from the, the strange distance that you feel when you're just looking at a single skeleton. Yeah, no, there is a very strange distance. Uh, and you clearly are one of those unique scientists, perhaps, who can communicate so well, but also in a literary fashion, really, because this book is very literary and scientific. It gives great descriptors and it really does transport you to these different ecologies and how they felt and how they looked and the kind of character that they had. And obviously it um, gives us this strong grounding in facts, but it also does give you a very easy bridge to another land. So I also wonder where that creativity and imagination comes from. Oh, well, firstly, thank you. That's very nice things to say. Um, <laughs> um, I think part of it is that, so I, I like to read uh, nature writing and, you know, the, the, the sort of books like Robert McFarlane writes, for example, um, where he's sort of very interested in the human response to the place and to the landscape. And it, it sort of struck me one day that it was not really an approach that had been applied to the past. But I think it, the reason that I wanted to do it like this is because it's all very well, you know, listing facts and figures about organisms that used to exist, but it's not really what people actually respond to in reality. And if you want to show that this is a real sort of landscape, a real place that you could have gone to where you were around at the time, you have to feel like you're there. And so, yeah, every every factual statement within the book has a paper behind it. And so some ideas are a bit more controversial than others. Some ideas are a little bit more tenuous than others, but there is, you know, there's evidence behind the factual statements. It's my response to the past, right? It's mm. a personal interpretation of what how I would feel in these places, I guess. But I, I hope that in doing that, it becomes sort of immersive and you get the emotional, the sensational quality sent in the sense of eyes and ears um, <laughs> you know quality of uh, of these um, landscapes and indeed you know seascapes because uh, beyond a certain point of time point in time going backwards everything is underwater again so you now you have to draw on my own experiences from visiting uh, you know various forests around the world the various ecosystems around the world and you know i have in the past gone diving not for a good 10 years or so but you know drawing on my impression of what it is like to be in a reef ecosystem you can sort of apply some of these to the to uh, past reef ecosystems yeah reefs are in the news at the moment with the great barrier reef having another mass bleaching event right yeah so we are very concerned here in australia about the great barrier reef and you do even mention the great barrier reef in your introduction and something 
might be surprising to people is that you say today's reefs may be coral, but in the past, clam-like mollusks, shelly, brachiopods, and even sponges have been reef builders. Corals only took over as the dominant reef building organisms when the mollusk reefs succumbed to the last mass extinction. And I think the point that you make there is what comes out throughout the book. You're pointing out here that these processes happen all the time across millions upon millions of years and we're only dealing with our tiny little piece of history that we remember that we're thinking about or conscious of but in Mm -hmm. fact things were drastically different and different things might have become extinct but new things formed in their place. Yes. So I I would say that mass extinctions certainly are catastrophic events Mm. and I'm certainly not going to counter that. But uh, to the sort of the the, the main bulk of uh, of your point there, that ecosystems change over time. That it's absolutely true. I mean, a lot a lot of the time you see the same kinds of patterns emerging, similar roles appearing in an ecosystem. So that's kind of what this discussion of reef systems is, is all about. The the reef building provides uh, habitats and complex environments which supports a great diversity of life and that is true whatever the organism is that is doing the reef building. Now it happens that right now its corals are the main reef builders and they have been building reefs you know since the Jurassic and before but just in different proportions you know so the the, the, the mollusk reefs were dominant uh, by the end of the Cretaceous and then after that we um, move into a more coral reef dominated ecosystem. But yes, mass extinctions do cause big turnovers. And of course, the coral reefs are part of our time. So it it is all very well saying, you know, life will go on. And of course, after a mass extinction, life does go on and diversify. But it's not the life of our time, right? So looking back at all of these uh, 16 other lands, these 16 other worlds, we can see that Although life itself is persistent, the individual ecosystems and the organisms that make them up can be very fragile. I want to jump into the first chapter because it gives us a sense that there is some commonality between our time and this time that you're taking us to. The Pleistocene 20,000 years ago, which you've titled the chapter as the Thor Northern Plain Alaska in the US, the United States of America, and you're describing this particular world and you say that in winter there is little to eat the ground is four-fifths bare earth one-fifth dry brown stalks and what meager food there is is coated with abrasive dust even so the desiccated remains of the summer's plenty are enough to support several small herds of short-legged horses first of all Anyone who kind of is familiar with Alaska wouldn't necessarily think of that uh, ecology or environment associating that with Alaska. So although it's 20,000 years ago, a lot clearly has changed, but there still are some things like horses. Uh, yes, uh, Alaska at that time. I mean, so the, the, this scene is set on the north slope of um, uh, the Brooks Range, which is a, a sort of east-west mountain range uh, towards the north of Alaska. Um, and specifically, it's on the edge of a sand dune sea, right? So you don't really expect like rolling sand dunes as being a, an Alaskan environment. But at this time, a lot of uh, water from the world's oceans was locked up in huge ice sheets. And so the sea levels were considerably lower. And um, the sort of patterns of uh, airflow meant that actually 
Alaska is extremely dry at this time. So it was it was still very cold, but very dry. And so this is kind of a, a, an environment which really suits organisms like uh, like horses um, with their sort of you know, long limbs and hooves. They are sort of really well suited to long distance travel across wide ranging, relatively flat areas. And this part of Alaska and the Yukon is one end of the Mammoth Steppe, which is an ecosystem that was at this time the biggest one in the world. It stretched all the way across Russia through northern Europe and all the way to essentially to Ireland. And it was the biggest contiguous biome on the planet and is now essentially gone. There are some patches left in Mongolia, which show some of the same kind of vegetation structure and some of the small mammals are still there, but it's missing the big herbivores like the mammoth itself. Uh, So this chapter is really showing how something, how fragile ecosystems can be and how we can go in actually an extremely short period of time from having uh, an ecosystem covering, you know, a considerable portion of Eurasia and Northwestern North America um, to being essentially absent. I was interested in the fact that you talk about the concept of an ecosystem being not a solid entity and that it's made up of hundreds and thousands of individual parts, each species with their own tolerance to heat, salt, water availability, acidity, and each with their own role. And you talk about a really kind of key concept here about something called a fundamental niche, which is the possible survivable conditions for any given species. Could you delve a bit more into that and what significance these concepts have for the book as a whole? Because they do seem to be critical to how we understand each ecosystem that you take us through. Right. And that's the other function of this chapter, really, is to introduce some of these really key terms. So a um, a, a fundamental niche, um, as you say, it, it, it's the sort of theoretical space in which an organism can exist. So we might think of, you know, a series of axes and one of them is um, temperature. So, you know, we as humans, I mean, I guess we're slightly different because we use technology to solve these limits, but we would have a, we have an upper limit of a temperature that we are not able to survive beyond. And we have a lower limit that we're not able to survive beyond. And so if we were placed in an environment which uh, existed beyond these limits, uh, then we would die. And so a species cannot survive in an environment which uh, passes outside its tolerance. However, the fundamental niche is very, very rarely um, entirely occupied. I mean, practically never entirely occupied because you have other organisms complicating this, um, attempting to perform certain roles that maybe quite a good example is we have this small birds in Europe called titmice. And in Finland, there's been a wonderful study showing that when you have marsh tits and willow tits overlapping with one another, they restrict their diets so that the diets themselves don't overlap and they're not directly in competition. Whereas if there's only one of them, they will then completely sort of adopt the role that the the other species fulfills. So the realised niche is what sort of happens in actuality. But when you get climates changing, as we did at the um, you know through the Pleistocene, as as we left the last glacial maximum, uh, a lot of the, the the climates are then moving outside the fundamental niche uh, with the fundamental niche of a lot of these species. And when that happens, then the species must either migrate to somewhere where that they can still occupy that niche or are forced into extinction. 
And this is obviously relevant for what we're doing now. We are changing the climate. We are affecting those variables. And the species themselves, well, their fundamental niches are not changing very quickly, right? This happens, especially um, creatures like us and like, you know, with long generational times, like elephants, for example, they're not going to be able to adapt to the rapid changes that um, we're thrusting upon them. And so if we change the climate such that it moves outside this fundamental niche, then that spells disaster for those creatures. And always has. I mean, it's almost sort of a truism, really, saying that once you're outside your survivable conditions, you will not survive. (laughs) But um, it's it's a, a fundamental concept, really, within ecology is the niche. Yeah. One of the other things that it's come up in previous chats I've had are land bridges, which clearly were very critical to movement of animals and other types of organisms. And you say in this chapter that sea levels worldwide at this time are lower than those in the modern day by about 120 metres, which is quite mind-boggling. And so the growth of the ice exposed shallow seabeds building so-called land bridges between continents. And you talk about the Beringian land bridge that will be sunken by the sea. You say it's very vast and that it's essentially the mammoth steppe. Yes, so this is um, one uh, sort of sub-region of the Mammoth Steppe. So the Bering Straits today are that that patch of water between Alaska and uh, eastern Russia, called Chukotka. So during the last glacial maximum, this is relatively shallow sea, and all of this was exposed. It's an area which is, I I think I say in the book, the size of California and Oregon and and Utah and Washington all combined, right? It's, It's an enormous area of exposed bed. And because it was relatively low altitude compared with Chukotka and Alaska, um, it was um, often a little bit more sheltered. You'd get dwarf willows growing there. You'd get um, sage. You'd get all sorts of prairie-type environment within the Mammoth Steppe. But yes, these land bridges, I mean, it wasn't only there, of course. There were land bridges elsewhere in the world. I mean, Tasmania was connected to mainland Australia, right? No, uh, Papua New Guinea as well. That island was, uh, I think, connected to Australia too at that time. And when you get these uh, land bridges, you do get exchange of organisms between them. And we can still see the legacies of uh, of that today in the distributions of organisms. And in fact, Papua to the rest of Indonesia on the one side is, is um, quite a good example of this. The dividing line between the Australian type fauna in eastern Indonesia and the Asian type fauna in western Indonesia, it's known as the Wallace line. And it was this one of these sort of first described patterns of biogeography, as we call it, where you get these sort of regions of species that happen to sort of tend to coexist together. So, you know, there are echidnas in Papua, and whereas um, as, as soon as you get into the Western uh, Indonesia, you're getting great apes. And these uh, distributions have, have legacies that far outlast the ecosystems that they are a part of. Yeah. Thank you for some local context. It's uh, really interesting. Because <laughs> we always hear about how we're so mega diverse and special in Australia, or at least that's what comes up in a lot of the chats that I have. In the second chapter, you jump quite a bit further ahead um, and we move to the Pliocene four million years ago and you introduce some concepts like photosynthesis and also you talk about hominids 
and the first to walk and run exclusively on two legs. So could you share with us the significance of the Pliocene and what made it so different? And are they our ancestors, I guess is my question, because there are so many different types. But yeah, could you take us through some of this complexity? Yeah. So firstly, as to the ancestor question, paleontologists are generally very, very reluctant to say this was our ancestor, because the odds of actually having the species that gave rise to us or give, gave rise to any modern lineage is relatively small, right? The proportion of organisms that fossilize is, is very small, and the chances that, that we then find them is, makes it even smaller. But we can say that this is something that is certainly a very, very close relative of our ancestors, and that we came out of the group that included all of these Australopithecines. So the most famous um, Australopithecus is uh, so-called Lucy, which is Australopithecus afarensis from the Afar Depression in uh, sort of Ethiopia and um, down the Rift Valley in Eastern Africa. But this chapter is set a little bit before Australopithecus afarensis um, to a species that we can actually say is ancestral to that species, Australopithecus anamensis, which means um, the Australopithecus from the lake. And the lake in question is uh, the lake that's now known as Turkana, that used to be known as Lake Rudolph in colonial times. It charts human evolution in so many ways. So the, 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 the Leakey family is a family of anthropologists who have sort of been leading the excavation of this area for decades and decades at this point, and generations of that family. And Australopithecus anamensis is the earliest species from this site, uh, Canapoi, which can be definitively said to be more closely related to humans than to chimpanzees. So there are a couple of other specimens that are uh, sort of around that divergence and people dispute whether they're, you know, more closely related to a last common ancestor or maybe on the chimpanzee side or maybe on our side, you know. So debates rage. But um, uh, Australopithecus anamensis is uh, the first uh, to be certainly human. And it was considerably smaller than than modern humans. And we're looking at something which was probably, you know, quite, quote, ape-like in appearance in terms of, you know, hair coverage and so on, and relative brain size. Um, but, you know, we know that they would have been sort of social animals. And, and, and importantly, in Canapoi, it's a sort of environment which is very mosaic. So you've got patches of grasses, lands, you've got patches of um, these gallery forests sort of snaking along rivers. You've got a lakeside. It's, it's a quilt of environments. And this is really important for the development of um, humans as or hominins as a sort of problem solving complex environment uh, inhabiting creature, right, that is sort of walking on two legs between these um, relatively forested areas. We know that Australopithecus was still climbing trees because of the, the, the stresses that we can observe in their bones. We can uh, infer quite a lot about their largely sort of vegetarian diet this time. And, you know, it's a very important period for human evolution. And East Africa is usually said to be like a cradle of humanity, but it's a cradle of so much more than that, because we also see the um, some of the earliest relatives of giraffes, of modern giraffes, and we see a huge diversity of the relatives of modern elephants, um, and among all sorts of other things, ancestors of antelopes and wildebeests. And they're all there, the sort of classic African animals all sort of have their ancestors in Canopy you know, four million years ago. It's sort of, uh, it, it's almost the time when the modern world as we see it kind of comes into being. Mm. Okay, well, 
Let's go back a little bit more to the Miocene where something that, you know, is pretty surprising happened where the Mediterranean Sea was cut off from the Atlantic Ocean and essentially dried out. Could you take us through the Miocene, but particularly the the area that you're talking about in Italy uh, or what we now know as Italy? Yeah, um, so th- this is an event that happened right at the end of the, the Miocene, just as we're about to change into the Pliocene. And, um, you know, the continents of the world are, are floating on their tectonic plates, which, which shift around, and Africa is progressively moving north towards Europe. And so at some point during the um, late Miocene, what is now the Straits of Gibraltar, um, got closed off by this northward movement. And so the Mediterranean became separated as a system of water from the Atlantic Ocean. And it so happens that there aren't actually that many rivers that flow directly into the Mediterranean, and it's quite a dry part of the world, and it's and it was back then too. So the, the rate of filling of the Nile and the Rhone was just not enough to counteract the evaporation of the Mediterranean Sea. And so over a period of um, several hundred years, it dried out. I mean, it, so it w- probably wasn't entirely dry at the bottom. There were probably some extremely salty pools, but we are talking about drying to the depths of several kilometres, making it probably the lowest altitude place that has ever existed. <laughs> right? This is an incredible um, drop relative to uh, you know, even the, the biggest depressions that exist today. And then... At the end of the Miocene, a, an earthquake in what is now Morocco, Spain, Straits of Gibraltar, known as a strike-slip earthquake, which is where the two plates are moving horizontally past each other. And as they sort of jutted it, the whole land dropped down enough to re-establish this connection with the Atlantic. And the Atlantic poured in like a sluice over a weir um, into the Western Mediterranean. And so the Western Mediterranean fills up, but Italy and um Malta and Sicily and so on, make a sort of a, a saddle of higher land within the Mediterranean Sea or, or higher seabed as it is now. And so this blocked the eastern Mediterranean from being filled until just outside what is now the city of Syracuse, Syracuse, the waters burst over in a waterfall which uh, was wider than Niagara, was one and a half times the uh, size of the uh, Angel Falls, which is the biggest waterfall to exist in the modern day, and carved out these enormous canyons that you can still see through, you know, sonar imaging of the seabed. So it must have been, you know, one of the most spectacular sites of all um, sort of geological history. And in fact, so this was the first chapter I wrote, kind of as a, as a response to a question that I get quite a lot, which is, you know, if you had a time machine, where would you go? And I think, you know, really, I would want to go and see the Zanklian flood, as we call it. Yeah. (laughs) Because it just would have been an absolutely phenomenal sight. The desiccated Mediterranean being filled up at rates of a metre an hour. The amount of water pouring in, the sort of weight of the Atlantic Ocean just filling the Mediterranean Sea in its entirety over the course of about a year is a wonderful thing to imagine. But of course, life carried on in these high grounds. And so the, 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 the main site of this chapter is, is what is uh, now known as the Gargano Peninsula, which is sort of near the heel of the Italian boot. It sort of sticks out into the Adriatic. Uh, but at that time, it had been uh, an island separated from Italy before the Mediterranean desiccated. And so it, it evolved these, as many islands do, uh, organisms that are either 
you say dwarfed or subject to island gigantism. So much uh, smaller creatures tend to get larger and uh, big creatures tend to get smaller. Um, it's a sort of happy medium size for island life on uh, a place with restricted uh, nutrients and restricted resources. And so we get these giant flightless geese and giant flightless barn owl relatives and you know, tiny deer. It's, it's, a, sort of, it's a wonderful um, environment of very sort of strangely proportioned creatures, which, um, of course, then uh, eventually is wiped out as the, as the sea covers it again with this continual tectonic activity. Gargano was um, then briefly later under the sea and that fauna was lost forever until it has re-emerged as a, as, as a peninsula within Italy. Yeah, I loved that point that you made about island dwarfism and the fact that whenever species arrive on isolated land masses, the island rule of dwarfism and gigantism still applies. So it's, you know, even in other settings or other ecologies, this seems to happen. Why does it happen in an island or an isolated landmass? Well, there are, um, there's a bit of debate really over exactly why. So getting smaller for large creatures is maybe the easier one to, to explain, because if you're on an island with limited resources, then it doesn't make sense to be so enormous that you need a lot of food to, to sustain yourself and to sustain enough of a population to keep going. And so larger organisms tend to be become smaller. And there's also a sort of a, a, a common feature of islands because they tend to be a subsample of the, the species that are found on the nearby mainland, you often lack carnivores, um, or at least sort of major carnivores. So uh, that means that there's less of a pressure to be big. But if you are um, if you're small, you also have an issue on islands that uh, resources can be quite patchy and they can suddenly be in huge abundance, but then go through periods of substantial you know, famine or drought. And so if you are tiny and have an extremely short generation time, that is usually not very good for, for surviving. If you're able to have enough uh, resources or an, or an ability to survive for periods without feeding, without those resources, then you, you probably stand a better chance. But yeah, the exact reasons for this um, are, are are still debated, but it is a pattern that we can observe it was first observed in 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 dinosaurs in in what is now Transylvania, right, where we found the the classic sauropod dinosaurs, long necks, long tails, Diplodocus type dinosaurs. They're among the largest that exist, but in this place called Hatseg in um, what is now Romania, um, wonderful um, paleontologist called Ferenc Nopska um, found these dwarf sauropods, right, which were you know still large animals, considerably smaller than their close relatives alongside giant pterosaurs, right? So the, the winged, uh, enormous Ashdarkid pterosaur, which was, um, yeah, bigger than any flying bird today, but which would itself have been able to fly. Wow. I want to jump into a couple of key concepts as well that you bring in after this in the Oligocene 32 million years ago, and you're looking at Chile, and you talk about the Earth being between two stable states, an ice house, where there is permanent ice at the poles and a greenhouse where that ice is absent. But I did want to ask about um, that concept and also when you bring in the monkeys that travel not seemingly by a land bridge but through some other travel mode. Um, And I wonder if you could tell that funny story. Yeah, so we are technically right now, a geologist would tell you that we are in an ice age. Right. The ice age has not ended. We're just in the interglacial period. So there is permanent ice at the poles and 
were we not pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we would be cycling back and forwards between you know, extreme ice and less extreme ice, right? And this is a result of um, changes in the shape of Earth's orbit, which are known as uh, Milankovic cycles. And this, this has a periodicity of, a, you know, a few thousand years, tens of thousands of years. But at a sort of longer scale than this, we do tend to flip between ice house Earth, which is what we are in at the moment and have been since the Oligocene, and the greenhouse Earth, which is what we were in for tens of millions of years before that. So I think the last time we were in an ice house world before that was sometime in the Jurassic. And the reason that we switched in the Oligocene is really because of continental movement. So Antarctica was connected to South America. And you, if you look at a map today, you'll see the West Antarctic Peninsula kind of stretches out towards Patagonia. And there's this narrow passage, which is called the Drake Passage between them. And this opened up in the Oligocene. Well, in the Eocene, and it had effects which then sort of spiralled into the Oligocene. And one of those effects was to set up a, a current of water that goes around Antarctica called the Circumpolar Current, which doesn't hit any land mass along the way. And this sort of isolates the climatic system of Antarctica and, and tended towards cooling. And then once you'd started this uh, ice sheet formation in Antarctica, it sort of accelerated and became this runaway effect until we flipped to this other stable state that we find ourselves in for now. So, yeah. You know, the positions of the continents is, are, have been extremely important in sort of governing what happens at a global scale and therefore at a local scale. And um, it sort of links on quite nicely to the story of the monkeys, I suppose. So in South America today, monkeys are diverse and abundant, everything from howler monkeys to spider monkeys and so on. And all of these monkeys, though, have their ancestry in Africa. But they have somehow got from Africa to South America and then diversified. So for a long time, it was thought that because Africa and South America sort of neatly fit together, that maybe you had some sort of tectonic separation and that this had then caused them to evolve separately. But their common ancestor lived far more recently than, than this tectonic separation. And so we have to invoke some other way of getting them across. And for a long time, again, people suggested that actually there was somehow sunken land bridges, but there was no mechanism to explain exactly what those were or how they have disappeared and why there's no evidence of them. And so what we believe now is that from time to time in stormy weather on a big river, like, for example, the Congo, you get banks of vegetation, including trees that sort of hold together because of the roots of those trees and float off downstream. And they carry with them uh, the organisms that live there. And it seems that monkeys first got to South America through rafting on one of these uh, dislodged uh, banks of vegetation. Uh, but not only monkeys, all of the rodents in South America as well. So guinea pigs and capybaras and agoutis, all of these are and, you know, American porcupines. These are descended from rafting African rodents that uh, made it across the admittedly narrower than today, but still you know, substantial Atlantic Ocean. Um, and there are all sorts of these examples of species that have these transatlantic relationships from, you know, freshwater fish and salamanders as well, which is, those are the most mind boggling to me. I mean, the monkeys are sort of, people end up with a kind of charismatic impression of a seafaring monkey, just sort of, you know, <laughs> land ho, here we go. But the mind boggling ones to me are the ones where they rely on living in fresh water and how they're crossing an ocean and then diversifying on the other side. It's it, It's a incredible statistic made i guess only really believable by the time spans that are involved here and that you know it only has to happen once and what's amazing is that it seems to have happened 
many times. And in fact, twice for primates, because there are other monkeys that made it to South America, but which have subsequently gone extinct. And it seems to be an independent rafting event. So um, it's, it's, it's one of those wonderful uh, stories of dispersal and how a, a non-native species can become a native species. And so we really have to, you know, you, you have to think about what native even means when we're, we're thinking on the, on the timescale of millions of years. Well, you walked right into my next question. There was a really great line in the native or not question. I mean, it comes up here in Australia all the time because we do have very unique native animals, as you know, and our marsupials are particularly interesting and a lot of our birds. And you say that what is important in conserving an ecosystem is conserving the functions, the connections between organisms that form a complete interacting whole. In reality, species do move and the notion of native species is inevitably arbitrary, often tied into national identity. Could you delve a little bit more into that idea of native and non-native and obviously how we conceive of it today and how useful is the term native now? Well, I, mean, I think it certainly does have its, have its uh, uses. Some species are objectively invasive and bad, and they disrupt ecosystems by either putting a, a huge amount of pressure on the species that are already there, um, which uh, affects food chains and so on. So uh, it's cane toads in Australia, isn't it, that were particularly bad for a very long time, and perhaps still are. I'm not sure I'm aware of exactly what's happened <laughs> there. You know, so species like that, it is a good idea to stop them from spreading. But one of the examples in Britain which gets people extremely sort of emotional is um, with squirrels, right? So um, a, a century ago, the only squirrels really in, in the UK were the um, European red squirrel. And um, they are objectively adorable little animals. But in most of the country, including I live in North London, um, here you won't see a red squirrel at all. Um, they're told these grey squirrels, which are Carolina squirrels. So these are American squirrels. And it's often sort of framed as, you know, these greys coming here and destroying our native reds and so on. And th the language that people quite often use ends up being very reminiscent of nationalistic and um, sort of anti-immigration rhetoric. And there is a long history of conservationists and, and, and nature writers being closely allied to these really radical right-wing philosophies. I mean, um, Henry Williamson, the author of Tarka the Otter, was an ardent Nazi. It's the sort of an idea of some kind of purity and that this is how it was and therefore always should be that I want to argue against when I'm talking about what is a native species. And it is important because it does have practical implications. Native and um, invasive and non-native often have legal protection or legal definition. So in, in the US, a, a species is a native species if it existed there before 1492, so before Columbus landed in uh, the Americas. Whereas in Britain, a native species is anything that has been there continually since the last glacial maximum. Right. So, so obviously that's a completely different time frame. But also as the ice retreats, then species naturally move north because the climates are shifting. And so not all of the species that are present in the UK and deemed to be non-native, not all of them are dangerous. A lot of them have an extremely long history 
uh, of growing wild here and um, are extremely important for our ecosystem. So it is it, it does have a sort of a practical conservation aspect as well. And so I guess what I'm trying to do is to show that, yeah, the concept of native, we just have to be very careful about how we use it and how we relate it to political ideology because it yeah this idea of purity and what should be in a place is quite often applied and taken more generally and taken specifically for humans as well which is obviously an inappropriate use thank you for um sharing that nuance with us I am going to jump into the Eocene and Antarctica because, I mean, it is pretty cool to think that Antarctica was a rainforest, really. You say that at the onset of the Eocene, the world warmed at a rate that was almost unprecedented, caused by high carbon dioxide and methane concentrations. That was just quite amazing to me, the idea that carbon dioxide levels were up to about 800 parts per million, which you say is more than twice that of the modern day and four times of the 19th century, which we know as being the Industrial Revolution period. So clearly this is a a really interesting chapter in many ways. Giant penguins is one of them, but also the temperature and what grows in Antarctica. Yeah, so this was uh, this is before we get this big switch into to ice house Earth. Antarctica, when ice was not present at the poles, it was covered in a temperate rainforest, um, or at least parts of it were covered in a temperate rainforest. The parts that we can access as paleontologists. There's a sort of rather morbid joke that maybe climate change isn't so bad because we'll actually get the data from the centre of the continent. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that is quite morbid. Yes. <laughs> but. Um, in uh, so the, the site that um, I look at here is called Seymour Island, and it's uh, it's it's just off the West Antarctic Peninsula. So it, it's very sort of far north. It's um, quite exposed. It's quite easy to access the rock record, and the rock record from this period of time, which is about fifty-five million years ago to about um, thirty-five million years ago, and in the Eocene we had this uh, temperate rainforest. And and that rainforest is to some extent still present today, just not in Antarctica, because this is part of a wider pan-Antarctic flora, um, which uh, is still found in parts of Australia and parts of New Zealand, and um, most of all in South America, um, in the Valdivian rainforest in, in what is now Chile. This is not a tropical rainforest, uh, incidentally. So when people think of rainforests, they usually think of the rainforests of you know, the Congo or the Amazon or Indonesia. And these are the, the hot rainforests of, of the tropics. But there are temperate rainforests as well. Um, you know, In Western Canada, um, the native ecosystem of Western Scotland and much of Ireland is, um, is a temperate rainforest of which only patches survive because we currently burn the heather on the mountains to promote grouse for shooting but uh, rainforests are essentially characterized by having an extremely wet rainy climate for most of the year and so what you end up with is plants that are growing on other plants um, these epiphytic plants so lianas and ferns and, and mosses and so it's a very dense sort of impenetrable forest and this is what you would have found on what is now Seymour Island um, in the Eocene. We know this is a, a coastal place we have uh, evidence of this of this beach ecosystem and what I think is most people's sort of take-home animal from Seymour Island are the giant penguins, the early penguins. The largest specimen is estimated at about two metres tall. 
which is <laughs> amazing, yes. like basketball playing penguins. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, these are still relatively stocky birds looking at about 120 kilos, right? which is you know, to think of a any bird that is heavier than, than me. You have to go for some you know, creatures like ostriches. Well, you do say that these particular penguins weren't necessarily exactly like the penguins we'd be imagining, the ones that waddle. These ones had a more waddling gait, you say. They retained their inner toes, which later penguins lose. Their wings are looser and they don't yet have rigid flippers. So, you know, they are slightly different to what we're thinking of, but they are still penguins. Oh, they're absolutely recognisable as penguins. You know, they're still sort of walking flat-footed and um, their necks have a bit more of a curve to them than modern penguins are relatively sort of hunched over and short neck. But these were still uh, underwater hunters with you know, long sort of javelin beaks, much much longer proportionally actually the beaks um, relative to, to, to modern penguins. And it, it's just part of a diversity of penguins which uh, no longer exists. Um, a, a lot of the uh, early penguins are these relatively large ones. I mean, most of them are larger than emperor penguins. But it's only emperor penguins that are left now in Antarctica. They are the sole remaining permanent animal inhabitant of the Antarctic land. It's I guess quite fitting that you know this is where they evolved. The earliest penguins, uh, I think, are from New Zealand. Uh, there are some that are uh, a, f- a few million years older than the um, than the Antarctic ones. But um, this is all part of the same biome at this time. So it's this is the environment. This is the their world. Thomas, I might skip past dinosaurs, or at least we'll acknowledge their presence because they are kind of special in and of themselves. Um, Stegosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus did not meet at all. There was 70 million years separating them. So I guess the point that you seem to be making and, and that I hadn't really caught on to is that there are so many millions upon millions of years between different types of dinosaurs even, and there's the... Cretaceous period, the Jurassic period, the Triassic period in this kind of block um, of the Mesozoic era. And there isn't this just kind of whole all-encompassing dinosaur time. I guess it's hard to get your mind around it as a human that there could be 70 million years between things that we conceive of as being, you know, largely similar or the same. Yeah, this is one of the motivations, I I suppose, for writing the book, really, because we do tend to um, think of the past in these sort of big monolithic chunks, right? So dinosaur times is all all lumped together. But of course, that was a period from, you know, the, the Triassic starts 250 million years ago, and the Cretaceous ends 66 million years ago. So we're talking almost 200 million years of um, archosaur dominance, if not dinosaur dominance. But uh, yeah, the, the, the fact that, you know, Stegosaurus and, and, and T-Rex, or indeed Diplodocus and T-Rex, or Iguanodon and T-Rex. I mean, these are these are organisms that are separated from each other by more than T-Rex is separated from us in, in, in time. So there have been tremendous changes uh, across these times. And this is why I wanted to look at each individual site as a whole and say, you know, what is here at this time altogether for certain, (laughs) rather than, um, you know, lumping too much uh, together. Because in terms of an an anachronism, right, if you think that what, if Stegosaurus is about, about 130 million years ago, let's turn that to 130 years ago and go back to sort of 1890. Who's Who's around in 1890? I don't know. It's the late Victorian period, whereas, you know, 66 years ago, what was that, 1956? So we've got 
is Clement Attlee still prime minister? I don't know. But um, you know, it's it, we we are well into the, the current queen of, of of the UK, right? So in terms of reigns, it's mixing up completely different um, completely different periods. But also, you know, I think the, the the conception is always well, history was kind of everything's in the sea. Then there's dinosaur times. Then there's the ice age. And so that already jump is jumping a good 65 million years. <laughs> so um, a lot happened in between there. And that's also partly the period that um, I have studied academically. So you know, there's a, a defensiveness maybe in, <laughs> in trying to get people to learn about the lesser known parts of Earth history. Yeah. And I know that you're from Scotland, or at least you grew up in Scotland, and that's one of my favourite places. And so you do take us to Scotland in the Devonian period 407 million years ago. So we are far, far, far back. Oh, yes. And one thing that certainly caught my eye was this discussion on fungi. But I'd, you know, I've only ever discussed fungi in how we currently talk about it, not in the Devonian period. So I wondered if you could explain what this part of Scotland was like in this time and also how was fungi, what was it like, um, you know, what characterised it and the forests at the time and take us back there if you don't mind. Well, the first thing that we need to do to take us back is to have a little bit of a, a geography um, <laughs> lesson. So for a long time leading up to this, the, the uh, Iapetus Ocean, as we call it, separated three main continental masses. So there's uh, Laurentia, which is uh, the precursor of North America. There was um, Baltica, which is uh, what we call the precursor to sort of, you know, Scandinavia and Western Russia, that kind of region of Europe. And Avalonia, which is sort of the, um, you know, the southern UK and Ireland and the low countries going down to sort of Portugal, Morocco, that kind of area. And over time, the Apatis Ocean closed as these uh, continents moved together. And uh, eventually they all collided in a sort of three-way collision, which produces an extremely high mountain range. So as high as the Himalayas, but stretching from what is now Tennessee going up, what eventually became the Appalachian Mountains, through the hills of Donegal, the Scottish Highlands, then up into the Scandinavian peaks. And so the mountains that are there today are kind of an echo of this past. They're not the same mountains, but they're sort of built on the same continental routes. And Rhiney is sort of bang in the middle of this. So today it's uh, in Aberdeenshire, so oh, just yep. on, the, on, on the edge uh, of, uh, sort of northeastern Scotland, on the edge of the, uh, of the Cairngorms. But back in the Devonian, it was part of this mountain system, which, of course, you know, with all these continental collisions, there's quite an active volcanic system going on and so you end up with pools of groundwater being superheated and these mineral rich springs and the thing you have to think about as a sort of modern analog is Yellowstone National Park really right where you have um, all of these geysers and as the silicon rich water comes out of the geysers it spills out and the silicon precipitates out and and coats all of the living things around it so we get this incredible subcell level preservation of individual plants and animals in just a, a phenomenal detailed view of what was there you know when it gets flooded by this geyser water and some of the things that you can see are you know individual um, strands of you know fruiting bodies the, the mushrooms of the little fungi that are growing on these absolutely tiny plants so the, this is a time before plants were, uh, as we say, vascular, which means that they had, you know, the system of tubes for moving uh, waters and sugars and so on around the uh, around the plant. So more moss-like, and the way that these plants are able to have a foothold 
on land, this is a time when we sort of begin to develop roots, and they're doing that in collaboration with fungi. Fungi are masters of extracting nutrients from sort of non-organic sources like rocks. And so without these fungi there, the plants are unable to start to sort of really break down these rocks and to extract the minerals and to develop an ecosystem on land. We only have life on land because of this collaboration really between between fungi and plants. And of course, some of these fungi are, are parasitic and we have evidence of them invading the plants with their hyphae and, and, and the plants growing defense responses around them so that we know that this is not a you know, a friendly relationship. And, you know, in some cases, we do see mutual relationships and others we see these sort of parasitic and digestive relationships. But the sort of the, the iconic organism of, of this time is an organism called Prototaxites. And while all of this plant life, it's, it is like a moss forest. It's very low centimetres tall, probably up to about sort of a foot at most. Um, but Prototaxites, some specimens in other parts of the world can reach up to eight or nine metres. So these tower over everything else. And well, what are they? They're sort of bollard shaped um, structures that appear from microscopic analysis and so on of their, of their tissues to have been at least partly fungal. And the reason I say partly fungal is because um, there's evidence from their surfaces that they were uh, interacting with photosynthesizing partners that were sort of trapping light. And when this happens, when you get this really tight interaction between a fungus and a, um, and a photosynthesizer, we call it a lichen. So these are um, enormous lichens, we believe. When they were first discovered, they were assumed to be trees and assumed to be conifers, just because that's what people had found in, you know, slightly younger sediments. And so they thought, oh, well, the, the conifers are just a little bit older. But then you know, evidence begins to accrue that there's something else. And they, people have come up with some pretty interesting hypotheses about what prototaxites is. And, and certainly the current consensus is that they are, um, yeah, a, a, a fungus perhaps a lichen. And so that's um, how I've been describing them here. Uh, but really, you know, a lichen is almost the, I guess, almost the end point in collaboration, right? They're so tightly interacting with one another that one part cannot survive without the other. And you, know, you can you can make the sort of farming analogy of is the, fu- is the fungus farming these uh, photosynthesizers for food and offering them the protection of its little sheath that it covers them in and so on. the collaboration is what then drives life being able to find a foothold on land in the first place yeah no it's i mean it's shocking in my mind to think that a lichen could be that large sure so. i mean everything is all sort of crusters and or maybe hairy today lichens but um yes nothing nothing so grand no not like that and you do also say that um its close relatives today include a bewildering array of fungi, including Dutch elm disease, brewer's yeast, penicillium, and truffles. Most fungi and most of any given fungus are these thread-like hyphae, right? So what we actually see of a fungus tends to be uh, the, just the fruiting body that emerges temporarily. So it's, uh, you know, fungi are, are, are extremely bizarre, I think, to us as animals, because they, I mean, they, they are in many ways sort of ecologically, we think of them more like plants, but they're more closely related to us than they are to plants. And, you know, they share some of the sort of same cellular features as we do. Um, and, and so it's just this entirely other way of living, which we don't think about enough, I think. No, we don't. Just finally, Thomas, let's go to Australia. <laughs> We're in the Ediacaran times. 
550 million years ago and you're taking us to the Ediacara Hills in South Australia. When we think of ancient, we think of the Northern Territory, we think of Uluru, the big rock formations in that central part of Australia. Why are we here in South Australia of all places, which is kind of closer to um, Victoria where we are here in uh, Melbourne? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that um, a a lot of Australia is geologically extremely old. It's, um, I mean, a a lot of those sort of long parallel uh, red mountains in the centre or red hills in the centre are some of the oldest mountain ranges on the planet. They eroded sort of parts of those. And and in fact, when you get into North Australia, you find some of the oldest rocks on the planet and the oldest evidence of life. Australia is full of extremely ancient things. But, you know, complex ecosystems are actually relatively young. So um, South Australia (laughs) and the Flinders Range is, although it's extremely old, um, 550 million years in the Odiacan Hills, as far as Earth goes, it's still only a ninth of the way back to the formation of the Earth. The analogy I use uh, in the book is um, imagining that you're walking from Adelaide to Darwin along the road um, through Australia. And it's you know, so the distance in kilometres of at least one of the routes you could take is approximately the same number of uh, millions of years as life has existed on this planet and so if you were walking out of Adelaide by the time you're 550 kilometers out you're 550 million years back in time and there you are surrounded by these Ediacaran fossils this period is it's one of those periods of time that when people were first beginning to identify that there were fossils in this layer they were quite literally not believed it was seen to be you know the Cambrian is when complex life appears, Precambrian rocks have no fossils in them, was the sort of conventional wisdom. And a schoolgirl, Tina Negus, in, in the UK found um, some fossils in Leicester, and then she was just completely ignored by her teacher and said, oh no, you're being ridiculous, they are not fossils, those rocks are too old to have fossils. And then later, one uh, one of her classmates um, came along and he presented them to um, some local scientists who said, oh, no, hang on, actually, that's really interesting. And then of these turned up all over the place. These are They're very strange organisms. And part of the reason that they're not very well preserved is because they have no hard parts yet. They are mostly only preserved by impression. And in fact, in the Ediacara Hills, what you have is imagine that there's, there's the seabed that the organism lives on and it's quite soft and it dies and it's sort of lying flat on the seabed. It's covered by sediment and then it rots away. But then what happens is that because of the, the nature of the sand, of the rocks, as it's, as it's lithifying, um, the sort of lower layer gets sort of sucked up into it. So what they're actually preserved as is sort of inverse impressions on the underside of rock layers in the Adeacra Hills. So it's, it's these sort of shadows of what was there. And in terms of you know what they look like, um, an analogy which didn't make it into the book because um, without being able to explain it in person, it's almost impossible to go <laughs> for is you know if you imagine like a writing quill that's in an ink pot, right, and then somehow this quill is inflatable, and so you like you blow it up like a pool toy, and it's got this this sort of veined structure, mm. but it's um, you know three dimensional. It's it's puffed up. That's what several of these things look like. They have a hold fast, so rather like um, seaweed does, for example, today. They're attached to the bottom, they're hanging on and they're swaying in the current. But at the time that I was doing my undergraduate, what, 10, 15 years ago, um, it was 
generally taught about them so and we just don't know what they are we just have no idea are they animals they might be are they um, related to another living kingdom of life maybe or maybe there's something else entirely and consensus seems to be um, growing that several of these are in fact animals so uh, one of these organisms called dickinsonia which looks i mean it's sort of round and flat in shape and it seems to have moved around uh, it, it sort of looks like it's got all of these segments that grow out of one side and sort of compress around it's a very bizarre looking organism um, but there's chemical evidence of cholesteroids there and the cholesteroids are, are chemicals which are only made by animals um, so there's you know growing evidence from sort of a, a range of different sources that these are some of the earliest animals but it's a time before predation properly existed it's a, a an extremely different world of course everything on land is entirely bare yeah it, it's it, it's sort of eerie and almost alien i think the the Ediacan world compared with the modern day and yet that's where ecosystems began to uh, sort of become the uh, complex interacting entities that we see and have seen through the course of the book through the course of the last half billion years Thomas, thank you for taking us through this. And I guess I just wanted to finish on the notes that you do, which is around what you hoped this book might open our minds to, but also its relevance to the current day. And obviously one clear thing that springs to mind from an Australian perspective, but also a global perspective is climate change, especially given the floods we've had recently and the catastrophic bushfires. Could you share with us your concluding thoughts and especially that those kind of links that you're making between ecosystems, ecology and climate and um, these threats that we are currently facing? So paleontology is one of those disciplines which it sort of acts as the only laboratory that we have for studying what happens when climates change. Right? We can't build a second earth and uh, test our hypotheses in, a, in that sort of setting. So we can look back at all of the past Earths that have existed and see what possible futures might come about when we get periods of, uh, of dramatic change. Um, and really the, the lesson that I think we can take from it is one that, yes, okay, life is, life is persistent, but the, you know, when ecosystems are fragile, when you get these big turnovers, you know, uh, everything does change. And this is the world that we have evolved in. We are part of a very, a very long sort of chain of existence that has been going for 550 million years and will continue to regardless. But will it be the world that sort of includes us in it? There is nothing intrinsic about our presence on Earth. Now, that can seem a bit of a downer, and but I don't think it necessarily has to be because... I think we can then look at that and say, okay, well, we know that now, so we've got to act upon it. I take a hopeful view that these are problems that we have the ability to solve. We have um, the technology to solve. What we have lacked is the sort of political cohesion and, and agreement, and, and, uh, and that really comes from actually being active about it. It's, not, it's no good passively hoping. If you sit there and uh, say, oh, well, it's, it's too late now, then it's just as bad as denying that there's a problem in the first place. Um, so we need to take that active hope and actually um, say we can solve this and we will do our darndest to do it. Yeah, it's one of those situations where, yeah, every, every day, every, every week that we don't act, then 
more is lost, but there is still always more to lose. And so, and so the sooner that we do act, we will be able to save as much as we can. There, it's, it's not all or nothing. Yeah. Well, it's a very, very excellent perspective to have. And I appreciate your time uh, that you're so generously giving us at a very late hour in the UK. And um, I hope people can pick up your book, which, as I said, is very detailed. And uh, the end notes certainly attest to that, as well as a great amount of um, creative work in taking us back and I guess letting us time travel a bit. So thank you so much, Thomas, for joining me. And uh, I hope they can check out this book, Otherlands, A World in the Making, which is by yourself, Thomas Halliday, and out through Alan Lane. All the best with the rest of your work as a paleobiologist. I'm sure there'll be much more from you. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I've got to say I'm very excited about my next guest because I certainly do know Andrew's work from way back in the early thousands when he was uh, doing some hilarious stuff on CNNN, which was an ABC satirical show, and as well as The Chaser's War on Everything, another political satire program, and much more. And uh, he's also been involved in a number of other projects, including a recent one that's uh, going to be on your screens on ABC called Stories from Oz. And uh, Andrew is also apparently, I did see this, um, and he even wrote it on his own social post, come and see the hot one from The Chaser. Um, And I have validated it, and there are comments on YouTube that he is, in fact, the better-looking one from The Chaser. So that's also another part of his uh, biography. Uh, But I welcome Andrew now, who is joining me as a comedian, a songwriter, and the person behind a new show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival called Everyone Else is Wrong. Hi there, Andrew, and thank you for joining me today. Hi there, Amy. It's a, it's a huge pleasure to be to be here with you on Uncommon Sense. Uh, there's not many of us with Uncommon Sense, are there? No. So you and I, you and I, might be the only ones. I, I feel it is so, a small lineup. That's why we only have three guests because it's hard to find them. <laughs> yes, yes. No, we're we're rare. We're rare specimens, <laughs> aren't we? And somebody as hot as me is also very hard to track down. Exactly. Well, someone with Uncommon Sense and is hot is like the double. You know. Oh, it's look, special. It's, it's a burden, and let me tell you, it's a real burden. <laughs> I mean, gosh. Um, That's yes. why you're doing radio. I, <laughs> well, that's right. I'm, you know, look, I'm too gorgeous for radio, but occasionally, occasionally I'll stoop. Occasionally I'll stoop. Yeah. Well, yeah. I do know you. You did actually fill in on the ABC, didn't you? Well, I, I did for a while. Yeah, I did a little season of, of their breakfast show in, in Melbourne and it was very intense because the country started to burn down. And it was a funny thing because they sort of they'd hired somebody to be light and you know, diver- a light diversion, I suppose they wanted. Mm. So they got, you know, they got me thinking, oh, well, you know, it's breakfast. It can be a little light, fluffy thing. We don't want a proper journalist. And then all of a sudden <laughs> the whole country was ablaze with bushfires. And so I found, you know, they found themselves in this terrible position where they had this eccentric musical comic like me uh, having to make all these bushfire safety announcements. And, uh, you know, I, I had to restrain myself from doing them in a, character voices you know it was it was really a worrying time for me but uh, mm. the hardest thing is to pronounce every single town in victoria oh, there, yes. there's a real yeah you know we've got a very strange range of places you know we have a colac but we also have a clack clack 
but the clack clack is is spelled uh, colac colac. Really? <laughs> but yes, but it's pronounced clack clack. I'm where told. is clack clack? <laughs> oh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's where it sounds. <laughs> it sounds like it's in the middle of nowhere, and it is. Um, but uh, you know, <laughs> so I, <laughs> but uh, there's a book here I discovered at the uh, when I say here, um, I mean sorry at the ABC mm. studios. They have this book of um, all the place names in Victoria, and somebody's worked out how to pronounce them. Wow! Uh, and they've written it in the book. Although I found to my dismay halfway through the process that whoever had, had created that book was completely wrong about the pronunciation of most of those places. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I was reading them out as per the book and these, these irate callers coming in from the country saying, no, that's not, it's, it's pronounced, you know, it's pronounced whatever. Uh, it's not Colac, it's not Colac, Colac, it's Clack, Clack, uh, and so on. And now it's burnt uh, into your brain. It's really burnt into, oh, boy, yes, yes, the whole traumatic experience is burnt into my brain. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, um, I, I get tripped up at Radiothon when we get people to subscribe and we have some um, regional names that I don't get right and I get told off by my parents. So there you go. I don't even need <laughs> listeners to tell me off. How do they know how everything's oh. pronounced? They didn't write the book, did they, the pronunciation? I don't know, but they they have listened to the ABC for many years, so maybe they listened to the irate callers and passed it off <sighs> back on to me. I see. Yes, they probably... That's right. The circular loop. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, this... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your early comic or comedic career uh, and, I mean, I'm only familiar, you know, in the early years with your TV work, but I wonder, you know, when did you start in comedy? Was it, you know, with The Chaser or was it even before then? It kind of was before then a bit, Amy. I was, you know, um, I sort of fell into it by accident. I, my main drive in my career has always been just to avoid having a proper job or sort of to avoid, you know, doing anything that's, that's unpleasant. So um, that's sort of why I started doing entertainment, I guess, because it was a sort of a fun job. But, yeah, I, you know, I did student theatre and, uh, you know, when I was at uni. And um, so I was, I was doing kind of sketch comedy and, and that sort of stuff. Or even in high school I was... I was doing a bit of that. Um, I was I was at the same high school as Joel Edgerton, and <laughs> he and I had the lead roles in this Noel Coward play. And I think maybe that was the first time I thought, "Oh, this is quite fun," mm. um, you know, be, being you know, trying to trying to entertain people. Um, but I'm a quirky sort of performer, you know. I'm not for everyone, of course. Uh, you know, the stuff I do is a bit odd. Um, but if you like it, then then you love it. The good thing about being idiosyncratic, if you're an entertainer, is that if people share your sensibility, they really, really love you. You know, and everybody else can't stand you, of course. But that, that's the downside. But it's you know, it's not as if I could just sort of walk into a huge room and entertain everybody. But I would I would really entertain about eight percent of that room, and they'd love they'd love what I do. And so that's what I found in the early days. The the chaser. Um, the members of The Chaser, you know, they started out writing this newspaper, which was called The Chaser, and it, it was it was the brainchild of Charles Firth, who to this day, I mean, all credit to him, he still bothers even now to produce Chaser books and, and web, you know, the website, and he sort of yeah. runs the social media, whereas uh, those of us who did the TV shows, we, we don't do that. We, we're sort of off doing other things. Um but uh, he started that, so I was one of many writers of that, and I sort of got to know those people just as friends. 
And by some accident, Andrew Denton subscribed to the Chaser newspaper. And at that time, Andrew Denton was TV king, you know, and radio king. And he, he was very respected. He could, he, doors would open for him. You know, mm. if you're lucky, you'll go through a time in your career where doors open. For most people, that, that window is very small. And anyway, Andrew was, was in, the, in the window when his... What a terrible metaphor. He was in the window when his doors opened. <laughs> so this is... This is yeah, it makes no sense. Anyway, it meant that he could go to the ABC and say, look, I think uh, you should make a show with these people who run this funny little newspaper. You should turn, turn, turn this into a TV show of some sort, which was a, a very crazy idea of his, really, because, um, you know, the writers of that newspaper weren't tested as, as performers at all. Um, he just thought that their writing was funny, but for Andrew, he thought that's enough. And, and it often is, I think, in comedy. You know, you don't necessarily have to be the world's greatest Actor. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, he, he does the job as an actor, but he's he's probably not, not going to win an Oscar, but you, you know it's him. You know, oh, it's his show and there's an authenticity there. So maybe that's what made it work. And some of them made this little TV series, a very short series. It was just a four-part TV show back in 2001 uh, called The Election Chaser. And I wasn't in it. I, was, I, I mean, I knew them, but I was trying to be a musician and I was also just going off the rails in my personal life and I was useless. Um, and the next year they, they rang me up and said, look, um, we're, you're the only one who can act. Uh, so, <laughs> so do you want to join? They said, do you want to join us maybe, um, you know, for the next series scene? And, and, and I, I, I was very down at the time. I was, I was quite depressed and I sort of, I sort of said, oh, look, maybe, um, you know, I didn't really see it as an opportunity. I just, I just thought, oh, I found it a bit irritating, actually. I thought, oh, dear, what do they want me to do? Um, but I joined them anyway as a, as a writer-performer. And, and that's how I kind of accidentally fell into, fell into the thing without knowing how lucky I was. Um, but yeah. I now know, of course, as you get older, you realise how, how lucky you used to be at certain times. You, you don't realise it at the time. No, that's very, very true. It's uh, certainly helpful in hindsight. And you point out there that, you know, you're a musician and that is a key part of your skills in comedy on those TV shows, um, particularly The Chaser, but also in your stand-up as well. Um, so I do want to get to that in a tick, but I, um, I wanted to talk about uh, some of the segments that people might be familiar with uh, back from back in the day, in the good old days, um, on The Chaser, there was one that I just actually, I think it was really my favourite, uh, which was the surprise spruker, which was yes. hilarious. Uh, and there was also If Life Were a Musical. Um, and I did go back through the, the YouTube clips to refresh my memory a little bit. Um, and there was some, yeah, so the surprise spruker hands down was hilarious. I wonder if you could tell us where that idea came from. Yeah, I, I can. You know, it's because, well, that was from our most popular TV show, which was called The Chaser's War on Everything. And our, the idea of the show was to make fun of everything. I mean, we, we sort of, as a group, I guess we kind of got a reputation for, for doing a lot of comedy about the news and politics and that sort of stuff. But The Chaser's War on Everything was mostly not about that. It was mostly about discount store spruikers or, as, as you say, going out in public and singing songs in shops. And it was about making fun of movies and we, we, you know, we had a segment called the ad road test where we took tv commercials and 
went out to see whether they worked in real life or not. And, and so, you know, it, it was a show about everything, and which is something I'm trying to do in my new stage show too, is to, is to just make it a show about everything, to, to take people's minds off the horribleness of the world <laughs> and, and bring that chaos and that energy and, and put it onto a stage in the theatre. Um, the surprise spruker was based on those discount store sprukers that – used to exist. I, look, I don't think they exist anymore. I think they've vanished, sadly. Um, I went and studied them, actually. I, you know, I went to some... I went and sat outside discount stores, and they were always British, these guys, mm. for some reason. And they'd take, talk into a microphone, and they'd say things three times to make them sound cheaper. So they'd, they wouldn't just say shoes. They'd say, shoes, shoes, shoes. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Um, you know, bargains, bargains, bargains is what I would say. And you'd think, oh, boy, that's che- those, those shoes are really cheap. He said them three times. <laughs> and uh, so I listened to hours' worth of these sprukers to study <laughs> sort of how they did it. Um, it was an idea that Chris Taylor had that it might just be funny to send a discount store spruker to various locations and help them out by spruking their wares. So if, yeah. a, business, if a business was going poorly... You could send a spruker and <laughs> stand outside with a very loud speaker. Um, it was a very embarrassing thing to shoot because, you know, we did have a loud, a loud speaker and it was very heavy. So after oh, I'd yes. upset everyone, yeah, because I used to annoy the people in these shops quite a lot or, or they weren't all shops, they were it was the Department of Defence or whatever, wherever the spruker went. He went to a football club once and got heavily abused and then at the end, you'd have to wheel this heavy speaker away really slowly. Like, you, you know, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't just rack off. You couldn't just escape and, and go running off in, in, in a, you know, in, I wanted to. I was desperate yeah. to run out of there. But unfortunately, I had to say, uh, OK, sorry for upsetting you all. Now, um, can anybody give me a hand with this enormous loudspeaker? I've got to, you know. uh, it, was, it was very traumatising. I can, yeah, I could imagine that. And I, one of the places you went to early on was Giorgio Armani, which was really mm. funny. Um, <laughs> yes, he also, was the first one, actually. Yeah. That, was the, that was the initial idea was it would be funny to just sell very, very expensive clothing as if you were a discount store speaker. <laughs> and I think it was a really good time that you did it because it was when the Liberals were in power. So there were a number of, like, controversial um you know things at the time like workplace laws and you went out to the department of workplace relations mm. um you know with working conditions going out the door and then you also went to the department of immigration um and one of my personal favorites when i was refreshing my memory was the department of resources uh which was the, the surprise spruker at a uranium sale um, and I wanted to play just the short 50 seconds from that because it's just so funny and, I don't know, I want a good excuse to play it. So here we go. I'm going to play this for all the listeners out there to refresh your memory of um, Andrew's heyday as a surprise spruker. So here we go. That's right, China. Come on into the Department of Resources. We're having a massive uranium clearance straight from our mines, direct to your warheads. Huge, huge, huge explosions. It's the biggest demolition sale ever. What about you, sir? You could use a nuclear warhead. We've flattened our prices so you can flatten the rest of the world. China, Taiwan, 
Rogue states, there's nobody we won't sell dangerous rocks to. Wait till you see the fallout. You won't believe your eyes, all three of them. So hurry on in, because with these deals, the world won't be around much longer. It's nuclear meltdown madness. That's right, it's nuclear meltdown madness. I'm the Spruker. I'm spruking for massive uranium clearance sales. Some of our specials are so radioactive, you won't believe the dangerousness of this. That's right. Warheads. All that. Idaho. Well, I'm only trying to stop the war. Oh, that was too good. I laugh every time. Um, I really love the three eyes bit, Andrew. And, and I felt like that topic is perfect for the surprise Spruker. Yeah, it was a good. It had a good range. Of, I mean, that's what we needed when we wrote the scripts, and uh, it was one of the few parts of the show actually that we used to all write together because we we just enjoyed it. We'd sit we'd sit there in a room and just come up with lines for the spruker to say, and because uh, everybody, you know, and I'd be rolling around laughing. They were fun sessions, um, absolutely. And they they had a built-in punchline, of course, which doesn't come across on the radio, which is when the security guard would come and boot me out, and yes. so it was a kind of a it was a nice format, the Spruker, because you knew that you'd have an ending, which is that somebody would kick you out, and that'd be how it finished. You know, you wouldn't really need a punchline necessarily. Well, this security guard actually took the microphone out of your hands, which was <laughs> he didn't pick up the the speaker, which the other guy did, I think, at the Department of Immigration. <laughs> well, well, it's heavy, you know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a it's a workplace risk to lifting that speaker. That's it's, true, it's, actually. It was a two person lift. Yeah, OH&S. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I, it's also this show does point out one of your key talents, which is songwriting, and that is part of this comedy show that you've got on, Everyone Else Is Wrong, um, which is showing at the Forum this Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, you, I know that you're known for songs like there was one hilarious one called The Eulogy um, where you were taking the piss out of, you know, famous people who perhaps weren't very good, but they ended up being eulogised as these great legends with, you know, perfect histories. And we see that repeating over and over. And I wondered, you know, with your music and comedy, how do you marry them together and, and what's your comedic process or personal process for creating songs, you know, whether it's for TV or in particular your show that's coming up in Melbourne? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. I, look, I, I don't know, but the songs often just occur to me wandering around and I'll quickly write them down in a little notepad. And I wish I had a proper answer of being able to do it. I mean, sometimes it's out of necessity. If I know I've got a show and I have to make a show, well, then I sit there and just think really hard and, and write the show like a job, um, you know, kind of looking, mm -hmm. staring out the window is is part of the work of those things. A lot of the, sh the songs that uh, we did on the Chasers shows were, were co-written. I used to write them with Chris Taylor quite often um, or occasionally one of the other guys or, or sometimes I'd write them by myself um, depending on who had the idea, I guess. Um, in my new stage show, I've done a bit of both as well. The, the, Chris has actually written the, the lyrics. He's not a musician, you know, but he, he's brilliant at writing words. Um, so often it's it's just about thinking about a funny idea, and I think, well, look, I, I could do that as a sketch, or maybe I could do it as a song. Um, and I, in my solo show, it's a DIY approach on stage. So I thought it would be quite fun for the audience to watch a desperate man scurrying around between a guitar and a piano and an iPad, doing it all himself. Um, so that's what I've done, and I've recorded my own backing tracks 
in my, in my home studio, which is also known as my bedroom, and uh, which is which is where I recorded all the Chasers songs as well. Actually, uh, I just recorded wow. them in my in my bedroom, including even the theme music to the no <laughs> to, way. to some of our TV shows. <laughs> yes, it was very funny actually, and I mean uh, there was a I discovered after the Chasers War and everything, the theme music actually won the award that year for best TV theme from the um, Australian Guild of Screen Composers. And uh, I went along to this very fancy sort of awards event for these very serious composers. And I had to provide a score to the in-house orchestra. Mm. And, and, I, and I said, well, I, I, I don't really have a score. I'll have to make one for you. And they said, but well, what about the, you know, what about the band and the orchestra who recorded the song? Uh, <laughs> and I said, well, that was me in my bedroom. I, I, <laughs> I, I recorded all the parts myself, <laughs> um, which you can do, luckily, with software these days. Um, so anyway, you know, wow. so, so yes, you know, anything can go wrong in my stage show. It can go hideously wrong if I slightly misfire the iPad. The whole show collapses, and, and really that's part of the fun of going to see a live show, isn't it? You kind of yeah. hope. You sort of hope that uh, that it will just all go disastrously wrong, um, and it, and it may. Well, uh, you when, have, I, when I do that, you have been doing it uh, already. I guess you've had some some good runs at it at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, haven't you? Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a great fun festival. It's uh, it's huge fun because it all happens in one park, and and they set up these little wooden theatres that they bring in from Europe. And I was oh, told wow. that the, the company who makes those wooden theatres are very clever because they're the only people who have the, the tools for assembling the theatres. <laughs> you know, it's like no one... <laughs> not else, an Allen key. It's not an Allen key. No, it's a patented theatre assembling tool. And, uh, and so they've got the whole market tied up around the world, the festivals, apparently. They, I think they're Dutch. Uh, very, you know, brilliant idea. So um, mm. it's huge fun for the audience because you just go to these big parks and... It's like a, it's like a fun fair. Well, it's like a fun fair. There are rides, there's Ferris wheels and roller coasters and things, and then you can go and see a comedian or a cabaret show in one of the little wooden theatres. Um, so it's it's worth a visit, actually. It's you know, it's kind of like the Melbourne Comedy Festival, but squashed into one single park. Yeah, that's yeah. an amazing concept. Oh yeah! Oh, it's terrific! It's terrific! Yeah, yeah. Um, and so everybody does it there. Um, it, it's a little bit nerve-wracking though, because the theatres are wooden. You can hear three or four other shows at the same time as your own show, and, yeah. and that's the slight downside. Is uh, especially if one of the other shows is doing really well, uh, and you mm. can hear the audience going nuts next door, and, and you think, "Oh dear!" You think, "Oh gosh, I'm really going to have to lift my game." And <laughs> keeps you on your toes as a performer, the, uh, the Adelaide Fringe. That does, yeah, it sounds grueling. Oh, my um, gosh, yes. Yeah, yes. but that's it, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, with the title of the show, Everyone Else is Wrong, I mean, it does feel very apt for our current time because mm. we see so many, you know, people out protesting about things, saying I'm right and I've done my research on X, Y, Z. Um, you know, <laughs> this is don't the thing. believe I mean, the scientists. Yes, doing your own re research is fine if if you're a qualified researcher. Yes, um, most people are not. I think. I mean, you know, you are, and people often say educate yourself, which implies that they educated themselves. I guess, um, mm. which which is fine as long as you know if you're a clever person. But the problem with educating yourself, if you're a nitwit, 
is that it's not going to end well, you know. So, yeah, this is something, you know, I had a lot of time off during the, the pandemic because, uh, I, you know, I couldn't really do much entertainment um, or at least not live stuff. And so I spent a lot of time reading the comments and oh, that yes. gave me the idea for everyone else is wrong because it occurred to me that is our that is the current frame of mind of the entire world at this point in history. Everybody, we all think deep down, oh, I'm the only one who's right about this. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm convinced of the same. I mean, I think I'm the only one who's right. And so I thought, gee, I should, I, I, I need to explain to everybody what they get wrong in this show. And there are a lot of things people get wrong. So, so for instance, beeping appliances. I've got a whole song about beeping appliances and the fact that appliances, I, I think appliances should not beep. And I explained it in all the tune. <laughs> and gentrification is wrong. I think everybody's got that wrong. And so I explain gentrification in my show using Sesame Street characters. Um, you know, I've, wow. I've made my own puppets, even, Amy. Um, got my own Sesame Street. But they're, they're, you know, they're, they're not very good. They're mostly made out of <laughs> underpants. But um, still, it's a great way of me explaining why rising property prices are not, not good for, for people. And so on. Mm. I, I want to tackle the pillars of... The, the pillars that everybody's wrong about. Uh, one of them is that TV show Bluey. And, uh, you know, hipster parents love Bluey. Uh, they all rave about it. Oh, it's so marvellous. Oh, it's got issues in it that are dear to my heart. Ah, no. Bluey's parents, as a, as a dad, I've got to say this, yeah. they are the most irritating parents in the universe. Nobody can, can raise up to the standard set by Bluey's parents. I mean, they, they turn their furniture into a theme park for their children to enjoy around the house. Uh, they know exactly what to say to the kids. You know, Bluey's dad in particular, he makes short films to amuse his kids when they're ill. I mean, I'm, I'm a dad with little children. The, the reality is you, you're so tired that the best you can do is, is make a bowl of cornflakes without going wrong. Uh, you know... Yeah, it's, setting up it, unrealistic expectations. It's an impossible parenting bar, Amy. It really is. <laughs> um, so I've actually I've got a new song. I haven't released the, these songs yet. They're only in the stage show, but I think I'll, I'll be putting them out in an album at some time. Um, yes, I've got a song called Bluey's Dad uh, about my wife leaving me for Bluey's Dad uh, because he's so much better at being a father than I am myself. That is fantastic. I have not watched Bluey. I know that's probably sacrilege. Uh, but I do see that even some of my hipster friends, so to speak, uh, choose to watch Bluey despite them not having any children. So I'm <laughs> very confused. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is this is another one of my bugbears about Bluey. Is it's 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 one of those kids shows that's I, I suspect very popular because parents love it. Yes. <laughs> well, some parents uh, or, or, or people, people without kids because they don't realise the impossibility of those standards set by those. The other thing is, I wonder how they can afford such a lovely house, those parents. I mean, they're, they're young. They're young parents. Haven't the property prices impacted Bluey's family yet? I don't know. What I'm not sure how they're affording this lovely house in Brisbane that they seem to have. Or are they renting? Look, I, I doubt it because they haven't been evicted and the house doesn't leak. True, true. It seems to have very nice air conditioning. You know, they're not sitting there complaining about the heat or anything like That's that. That's true. So, so I think I think they must be mortgagees. Perhaps they're independently wealthy, or perhaps that you know, perhaps they're hoarding uh, Russian money. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, negatively gearing other properties nearby. I, it may be they might have a whole portfolio. Of, yeah. of Bluey's houses. Um, they're awful, awful dogs, awful dogs. 
Ah, oh, gosh. I never thought I'd be talking about Bluey on my show, um, but I feel like I've been educated <laughs> by you quite well. So those times, you, yes, those times have changed, Amy. It's, uh, yeah, I needed well, to introduce you to this. Thank God someone did because uh, I, I was really confused as to why anyone was watching it. But now I think I have an insight. Uh, yeah. well, no, and you met, now you mentioned the eulogy song too, Amy. Yes. I, I now have to update that on an annual basis. I don't know if you realise. But the problem Have with, you updated it? I have, yes. So, oh, fantastic. So the, the, the show um, at the forum it contains a brand new updated version of the eulogy song. Because, you know, the problem with celebrities is they keep dropping off their perches, don't <laughs> they? And we have so many celebrities nowadays. Everybody's famous. So they keep dying on a daily basis. So I have to update the eulogy song, kind of like a, kind of like an annual booster shot. I've I've got a sort of got a eulogy song booster, which I'll be delivering uh, to keep people abreast of, you know, all the most recent celebrity deaths and take them take them all down a peg, in the in the form of a song. Well, the beauty of eulogies or the eulogy song in particular is that um, I believe, you know, they can't necessarily be defamed in depth. So you can kind of say whatever you like, can't you? It, it's a gift. It really is. Yeah. The gift that keeps giving, Amy. It's absolutely wonderful. Yes, yeah. No, that's right. We do live in an era, in an era when, um, you know, people sue for defamation more these days than they used to. Uh, I don't know if people have become more sensitive or people we're finding it harder to you know, laugh at ourselves, but mm. um, especially, you know, especially when you've got members of the actual government suing, suing, people, yeah. on, suing people on Twitter for saying mean things. It's a very weird time to live through, isn't it? And, Certainly uh, is. A nerve-wracking, a little bit of a nerve-wracking time. Uh, I mean, I got sued for, you know, making a, a comedy sketch about the esteemed journalist Chris Kenny. And, Did you? Um, I must have blocked that yeah. out of my memory. Uh, well, it's, look, it's probably not worth remembering, really. But um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was on a, a chaser show. We did this show about the media called the Hamster Wheel, and oh, yes. uh, it was on TV. And uh, we, it was, we, we were all very proud of the Hamster Wheel. We all think it's our best TV show, actually. Um, but uh, Chris Kenny didn't think so, and uh, to, to the point where he sued <laughs> for, a, for a mean, for a mean joke. Um, well, so you do have to be a bit careful because you never know. You know, yeah. anyone can anyone can sue you at any time for if they want to, and if they have enough money behind them, they can. And then it becomes a real, uh, real trouble for you. Yes, absolutely. Well, certainly for comedians who are, you know, dipping their toe into the water of current affairs or politics, which you know, you guys at the Chaser certainly did fearlessly, which is why it was so great. And it, I feel that. TV is missing that now, you know, to that level. Um, perhaps the environment has changed too much. I don't know. Oh, yeah, it has. It has extre there's extreme caution out there. Yeah, mm. there really is. And, and the um, because of, uh, yeah, I think that the defo lawyers are all much more nervous than they used to be. Um, oh, they, they definitely are. Yeah. yeah. I discovered but the that material is so rich, though, now. You know, it's kind of a tragedy in that in that. <laughs> <laughs> Why light? Because you know, there's so much you could be doing with this particular uh, yeah. government. Well, look, I, I think, or yeah, or well, or indeed any government. I think, yes. You know, you know, the good thing about you know, democracy is you ought to be able to make fun of these people, not just the government, but any public Anyone. figures. You know, it's public figures. You know, if you, I, I sort of think, I, I sort of think, look, if you're going to put yourself into the position of being a public figure, it's your choice. You know, you don't. You don't really have to do that. 
Um, so therefore, you ought to be able to, you know, cop some mockery, I think. Yeah. And, you know, people ought to be able to make jokes about you. Um, I say this now, but I'll be deeply wounded if anybody ever makes jokes about me. <laughs> well, yeah. if you, people go to your show, they better hold their tongue till after. Um, when, <laughs> after when the show's finished. It's called Everyone Else is Wrong. And uh, thank you so much, Andrew Hansen, for joining me to talk about comedy in general and uh, your brilliant career, which is ongoing. And I hope that people can go to your stage show and see you uh, perform your songs, but also your sketches. It sounds like it's going to be an absolute rollicking time this Friday, Saturday and Sunday at the Forum. And, uh, yeah, all the best with it. Thanks so much, Amy. It was lovely to talk to you on, on Uncommon Sense. <laughs> Make sure you keep your sense uncommon. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm going to use that um, as an endorsement, if you don't mind. <laughs> yes, go for your life yeah. and then I'll, then I'll sue. Exactly. <laughs> Sounds perfect. I've just been chatting with Andrew Hansen. He is known for his work on The Chaser, uh, Stories from Oz. He is a songwriter and comedian and his show is Everyone Else is Wrong. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.